to episode 18 of the Complete Shishtaf Kishlovsky. This is Red from the Three Colors trilogy, and it is our final movie. This is the last movie that Kishlovsky made before he retired and then um, unfortunately passed rather quickly after that um, because of heart surgery. Uh, but we are here to cover this final movie and we will also kind of touch on the overarching trilogy and uh kind of how it it all connects together obviously this is this movie is the most overt in that connection of the three um, but i think there's also um overlapping themes certainly and, and even stylistic elements um i'm matt gasteyer and i'm here as usual with Travis. How are you, Travis Trudell? I'm doing pretty well, you know? I'm hanging in yeah. there. No one's hit my dog yet, That's good. but otherwise than that... Oh, uh, gosh. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I almost um, turned it off at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm here, which semi-as usual as well, uh, with uh, our uh, co-host for these uh, for this trilogy, our, our special guest, Erica Long from the Magic Lantern podcast. How are you, Erica? I'm great. I'm so glad to be with you guys. I'll say, uh, how about try usual, try host? No, yes, nice. we're completing the trilogy. It's uh, uh, very exciting, and um, I think it'll be fun to tie all of these together. So um, we're really again just so uh so thankful to have you uh on for these three episodes so it'll be fun to talk about this this last film i wanted to say thank you to you two again for inviting me because i didn't know that i needed to come back to this trilogy right now and i'm so glad that i did and it's just been a wonderful spot for me this year awesome yeah no it uh i i it's been a long time for all of us to watch these movies and it does feel, um, you know, certainly applicable to what's happening in the world, but also I think just kind of, it, these are, these are nice movies to touch in, you know, to check in with, uh, every so often in your life, because I think they, they do kind of mean different things, uh, at different points in your life. And this one, I think especially illuminates that because it's got, um, two people of, of different generations that are kind of dealing with these themes in different ways. Um, did, was, was there any particular setup that you wanted to uh, do, Travis, before we dove into kind of our initial thoughts on this movie? Obviously, again, this was a pretty quick turnaround in terms of uh, script to pre-production to, to shooting uh, after White. This one, right, right away, there was, no, there was no pause. I think he was filming in the day and editing at night the other two, uh, the other two films while he was mm -hmm. working on this one. Um, which is why he, you know, I think in every every post interview he made about after this movie was he just talked about how exhausted he was, how just the the sheen of everything had worn off and uh, he was just done. And I can understand like he he had quite the run going up into these three movies. He made a lot of films in those last seven years. Um, but uh, this was uh, the other goal of this was to make sure that. Uh, this film was uh, ready in time to make it to Cannes because he wanted to have one of each of the trilogy 
at the Venice, the Berlin, and at Cannes as well. And so there was also the pressure of making sure this was done on time uh, that he had placed upon himself just so he could have, you know, have the hat trick of all three movies in all three festivals at the same time. Right, and he won at Venice, um, and uh, he won director. He won, he won yeah. best director at Berlin, um, and then this lost to um, Pulp Fiction for the Palm Door at Cannes. Yeah, Tarantino said that you know that that was a mistake. Uh, Red is a masterpiece, and he should have won. And there's a there's a bit of grumblings in like the film nerd circles that Cannes uh, didn't want him to win the win the right. triple crown of having a director in every festival. So uh, Pulp Fiction kind of as a no, which is uh, which I, I hope is not the case. That's a sad thing, but uh, you know it's a shame because this I think I think if this would have won, this would have in the spotlight and a lot more people would have seen this film but it actually was very successful in the u.s as it compared to uh in europe um this was the bigger one i think uh weinstein had put a lot of uh a lot of effort to put in and this got into the academy awards uh not as a foreign film but as a uh best picture and best director not not best picture yeah no, not just best, best picture sorry just best director yeah yeah and there was another um, one i think cinematography he... as well yeah, and he he actually uh, it was disqualified uh, for um, best foreign language film because it wasn't uh, majority Swiss production, um, and he that was part of the um, decision of filming in Switzerland. It took like a long time for them to sort of decide what where they wanted to make this movie, um, and they they ended up picking Geneva um, because he wanted to shoot in French and. He ended up not really liking Geneva. He didn't feel like it had much character, uh, and it took them a long time to kind of find the locations that they wanted to film in. Um, but I, I think they came out uh, pretty nicely in the end. I mean, the the the, the corner that uh, that she lives on with the guy across the way, uh, uh, similarly again reminded me of Amelie. Um, it, it had you know it has that kind of like magical european uh nook like neighborhood yeah. kind of uh locale which he actually didn't really like about it but he wanted a grocery store nearby and he felt like if you had a gro- uh, open air market that was the cor- kind of corner you were going to get no matter what so <laughs> that's where they shot <laughs> yeah i think uh you you could you could it could pass off as a as a small little french town if it wasn't yeah. for the fact that there's a giant Swiss Army knife in the window to right. make sure you know you're in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so um, Erica, what, what did you think of Red? Uh, just kind of your initial thoughts on, on the film this time around. Well, I was thinking when I before I started watching it again that I remembered way back in, excuse me, way back when, having this specific moment that had made me smile and kind of chuckle with pleasure. And I remembered vaguely the circumstances of it. I was thinking photo to real life or vice versa, but not having seen it since it came out, I wasn't sure at what point that happened or Mm. if my memory was going to be reliable. And if it was, if when I came upon that moment again, I would have that same reaction. And I'd also remembered that back when this was my favorite of the three so I was wondering how that would feel this time around and it's different for sure and I was really surprised about that this ended up being 
truly, and I almost hate to say it out loud, the weakest of the three for me. Mm. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Just because Valentine is so callow here, and when I first watched it, I was her age, basically. These women were all generally my contemporaries, though Julie mm-hmm. would be the oldest. And I guess I just don't relate anymore to what a blank she seems to be, and that she seems to lack agency rather than passion. And I'm not also the judge's age now, so I'm sort of in between. Yeah. So I'm wondering, as you mentioned earlier, how this is going to feel to me in another 20 years. Hmm. I think at that point, you start thinking about the judges kind of world, you know. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah. I can I can definitely. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the realizations I had was that I had not seen this movie. I thought I had. <laughs> oh, um, <wow>. I, I, <laughs> it's, I don't know what I have seen. <laughs> <laughs> but it was not red. Uh, all was this it, time, it, I thought, was okay, it I've the seen other red. Was I've it the s- Bruce Willis Helen yeah. Mirren? Yes, yeah, so this is the assassin movie red. That's the one I've seen. Uh, no, or did I, you I, just conflate it with Veronique? Maybe I, I think maybe like some of they Veronique, and and I think maybe I had seen like parts of this. Like someone had shown me a scene in film class. And mm. I had just kind of in my mind's recognition, like I closed my eyes and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen Red. And so when I put this movie in and I'm, you know, a half hour in, I'm like, oh, man, I have not seen this film. I This is a surprise. Uh, but, yeah, it, I it was uh, it definitely was uh, something that took me a few viewings. You know, I try to do a couple viewings each time when we watch these films and uh um, I can I can completely understand. Um, uh, Irene Jacob, her character, I think, is so naive that it becomes kind of frustrating. She really she really doesn't have agency, which also plays into this thing that this movie is so much about fate. It almost is like like she is just a leaf on the on the stream of fate and makes no effort Mm -hmm. to have agency or change or wants or desires. I mean, the fact that she stays in a relationship with that guy who treats her like crap on the phone all the time. um, You know, that kind of thing is like, well, why would you do that? And to the point where she is going to England to see him, even though he has no interest um, is a very, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And I can see from a younger perspective seeing her as kind of like someone who thinks that like she can fix it and she's in love and but at the same time there's all this other stuff going on around her that she has no control or say over and it's all pushing her towards this very specific thing back into the arms of august who you know is also being manipulated in weird ways it's a it's a very it's a very interesting film in terms of how it is so directed i guess is is, like this one feels the most directed oh definitely yeah no i totally agree with that i mean i i think um well there's a lot in both of what both of you guys are saying i mean i think i i really i really love this movie um it, it is not uh perhaps at the level of blue although we'll see how this conversation goes for me but i i think for me, what's interesting about what you're saying, Erica, is that I have that problem with Veronique 
to a certain degree like she feels so flighty and kind of um you know certainly male gazy a little bit and she has that wonder childlike wonder but also like weird sexual energy um and i think that made me have a difficult time fully connecting with veronique and i also think veronique the the parallel lives component is not executed as gracefully as it is here with the judge ah. and the younger uh judge uh the man that becomes a judge and so watching this i was constantly reminded of veronique um but i guess for me valentine cert while certainly a bit of a blank slate at least i i get a sense from her that she's striving for something which i think is more than i can say uh about um, Julie Delpy's character in White or about Veronique um, in the previous film, she does feel like she wants to make a connection and she's not willing to do that with just anybody. You know, she rejects the advances of the photographer. Um, she has a rocky start to her um, kind of paternal relationship with this judge um, and I think she is similarly open-hearted like, um, like Veronique, but she's re more ready to kind of make that connection to a, a, a greater degree than Veronique was. Um, and I, I like that about her. It feels to me like she has, um, she's she's more of an active protagonist than any of the women in the previous three films even even julie you know who is sort of active in her passivity um there's there's something here that that i respond to in a more kind of complex fashion i guess I'll being say. more open to the world and the possibilities as opposed to yeah. really actively stopping right. to, or trying to close all those down. Yeah. And, and even if she doesn't specifically know what she wants, um, it, it still feels like in the moment she does, you know, like she, she knows, she knows the sort of micro small choices that she wants to make. And it's more difficult for her, I think, to be she's she's certainly lost and not sure what she gen, you know genuinely wants in kind of the long-term macro view but i think of that as more of a reflection of her age rather than a reflection of her character and so when she makes this kind of deeper uh, almost mystical connection with this judge she's kind of exploring those areas that are going to be much more active in her future life. She wants to know kind of, she wants something to happen to her. And so part of her experience with this guy is trying to figure out what that thing is that she wants. And I think she wants to know and finds great comfort in the idea that she's going to be happy at some point. Yeah. She doesn't necessarily need it right now, but that it's there in her future and i'm sure that that's what my 20 21 year old self also right. responded to yeah there is definitely like a hopefulness in in what she's talking about um and and what she's looking for yeah she she 
her natural response is one of uh, of turning a turning a frown upside down, kind of. Uh, you know, when she's out on the catwalk and she trips, stumbles a bit, and comes out yeah. instead of being hard on herself, or she just laughs. She goes, "You see that? I almost fell." And she's laughing about it. And there's a couple moments in this film where she's just, you know, it's all good. Like she's very much willing to take the hit and be okay with it. And I think the thing that piques her interest so much about the judge is he's the first person or the only person in this film that's willing to challenge her and what she, you know, just that concept that he says, why did you pick up the dog? She's like, well, it's the yeah. right thing to do. Well, was it the right thing to do because you wanted to feel good or you wanted to not feel guilt later in life? And it may like that really bothers her. <laughs> and she gets a little petulant about it where she's just kind of like storms off and calls him, you know, you know, it doesn't call him cruel, calls him something else. But uh, and she storms off and she has a few moments like that where she kind of just, you know, why don't you stop breathing or why don't you, you know, would you do that if that was your daughter? And she has those moments where she, when someone doesn't react the way she's feeling, kind of like in her state of look at look at all the good that can happen in this world or look at the positive when she's challenged with that she kind of takes a negative tone but it 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 does spark an interest in her she keeps returning back to him because i think he does uh challenge the way that she looks at things yeah i mean i think that that just even initial ethical question of you know is it is is altruism genuinely possible it's a it's not a complex concept but i think it's a, it, it is an inter- eternally relevant one for anybody because there is it is inherently impossible to overcome the question of whether you're doing something genuinely selflessly or if you're doing it for your own benefit you know you know you can say all you want you know giving all your money away to charity is is selfless but if you're giving all of your money away to charity because you want to look generous, you want to live a life of austerity even, then there's there's always going to be that question in the back of your mind of, are these good deeds that I've done genuinely altruistic? And I think it's a fascinating question, too, on the flip side when you look at the judge and the invasion of privacy, that... Who cares sometimes with the question of that generosity when the end result is a good one? You know, right. nobody in, in either of those scenarios, nobody had to be murdered, for example, to get there. You know, she did what she felt was right, whether or not she wanted to assuage guilt or just because it was right. And it was the right thing to do. Ultimately, nobody was watching. And with the judge making all of his decisions, there were significant, positive, difficult results to what he did, you know, exposing the truth, for example, that are very hurtful. But you might argue that 20 years from now, all of those people would have been better for having had that knowledge. And yet that's how it happened. Right. Like the question of, of this guy maybe jumping out a window because he feels trapped in his life versus discovering it and perhaps everybody can get to an equilibrium where they at least can move on with their lives and live the lives live the lives that they want to lead 
or the couple or the couple dragging on their relationship even though it's not mm-hmm. working to the best that they both could ach- achieve right i definitely don't come down on you know, either side of that but i think as an american what strikes me more is this idea of uh, kind of the social contract as opposed to that to put it in french terms brotherhood i think more of community even though it's a, a similar concept it's not exactly the same um and that's what i've been thinking about quite a lot when you say social contract what what do you mean i'm thinking of our responsibility to each other and the idea of doing the best for the greater good i guess is rugged individualism or something like that basically our responsibility in this larger world that we have all of these unseen connections and we have a responsibility to do what's what is the right thing what is generally accepted to be the right thing yeah we want to foster strength in those connections as opposed to severing them which Mm -hmm. i think is you know the judge at that the judge has has feels like he is we feel as the audience that he has severed from the greater world and has locked himself but he's actually casting out a technological net to still be a part of people's lives in a very uh perverse way you know and by listening to other people but not being a part of their lives he can insulate himself from the that fraternal bond that would would dictate that he acts or does something um yeah which it is, frees him know, from the consequences of his judgments yeah. he's able to judge and nobody it, and it has no impact at yeah all. which which is which is you know a setup that he has put himself in to kind of rid of that years of him actually being a judge and things out but not having to be a part of it which to change you know change the thrust a little bit which Kishlausi is talking about generally in this movie in terms of technology how it's uh keeping us separate even though it's supposed to be holding us together um there's many instances besides the listening equipment which the judge uses to spy on his neighbors so you know people calling and the phone line is busy so those connections that you're trying to reach out to make harder to uh to be a part of because it's getting in the way we're, we're definitely going to um, get back to the, the social contract question later on when we're talking about these movies. So let's put a pin in, in that one because I don't want to drop that. But there, there are, uh, I think we should bring up the phone and technological element sooner rather than later just because it does play such a large role in this film and, and to a smaller degree in the previous two movies. Um, you know, I think one thing that I really love about the work that Kieślowski does later in his career is that there's nothing um, that is kind of stylistically uh, bombastic or flashy that doesn't also have deep threads interwoven into the fabric of the rest of the film. You know, when David Fincher takes a camera through the handle of a coffee pot in Panic Room, it doesn't mean anything other than that isn't it so cool that the camera went through the handle in the coffee pot but Kishowski opens this movie with uh, a phone conversation and the way that he or a phone call really and the way that he does it 
is to pretty much literally track the process of the phone ringing through the wires and cables and going underground and across the channel uh, to reach uh, continental Europe on the other end. Um, it's a it's it's unlike any other shot in his in, entire career really it's the most kind of ostentatiously stylistic and and um it's almost like a special effect right i mean that's that's basically what it is oh it's Uh, it's yeah it's amazing like the 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 plotting and planning of that is so and it's such it's such a bold beginning to any of his films like i'm i was completely the first 10 minutes of red i was breathless in terms of what the camera was accomplishing i was like holy cow this did just this is not this is unrelenting like though it's moving it is moving here it is moving there we're going over here like these the shots are in that that phone opening really sets the tone for the camera is going to be exploring the spaces between these people and how vast they actually are like uh, he, he they do an amazing job with using the camera to do that to show how much distance there are between people as opposed to how we normally see things as the camera is connecting the them through the magic of editing and the space and the rhythm of editing um this camera is showing the distance between people which is quite fascinating and i like the soundscape that goes along with that mm. and there's yeah. a specific section too that i love when the camera is behind her then we realize it's actually kind of uh tripped ahead of her almost and it's really a oh, fun yeah. thing yeah when they're going when she's going into the apartment and it looks yeah. like it's pov and then it kind of pivots and she steps into the shot oh, yeah that's mm-hmm. such a gorgeous shot but the the he doesn't leave the the phone sort of as one thing in the movie it's not it's not only the space between people or a means of communication because it obviously plays a huge role in the judge character um he's you know looking in on this but it's also used to uh, communicate her other relationships it's used in a suspenseful way with the call like is she going to miss this call or not not Mm -hmm. you know not get this information um, it, it it's it's consistently played with and never dropped throughout the movie and I just think that that work like that it's so effortless it seems seemingly effortless and you you don't even necessarily notice it but it's so important to work that is uh, this consciously cinematic because if you use a style that is this kind of uh, overt and uh, clear and kind of uh, flashy and you don't have those components matched with the story of the movie and the themes of the movie it's just empty empty flash and there's there's nothing underneath it and i think that's so often forgotten in even art house films um that have been made since this um and you know certainly somebody like uh Teichfer who uh, claims a huge influence um, from from Kishlovsky, has, quite often forgets that lesson, that component of his of Kishlovsky's work that there is this deep connection between these uh, the filmmaking techniques and the and the cinematic style and what what we're seeing on screen and the story that's being told. 
like having that be the you know the uh, uh, the audacity of having that be the opening shot of such a personal story is and and because the way that the the way that the phone calls each phone call has different different levels and different meanings i mean the you know one phone one person is using the phone to kind of basically uh, keep his girlfriend in fear check you know constantly making her feel bad and you're you're sleeping with someone else is someone in the apartment with you you know are you sleeping alone just constantly making her feel bad about herself in their relationship and then at the same time you know valentina is using the phone to from her family basically you know that idea that she you know my my mom is my i'm afraid my mom's going to see my brother in the paper uh doing drugs and I don't want my brother to be out in the world doing drugs. So I'm just going to get them together by using the phone to kind of push them together so they can start taking care of each other. Because I don't want to because I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to England and I'm going to abandon them. And it's kind of in the tra- – I don't know if it's in the translation or not because, you know, I think we had this conversation when we were talking to our uh, professor friend over in uh, – Poland and uh, how often translations are sometimes changed and I know in the French she says I'm going to abandon my brother and mom but it doesn't sound like she's moving to England she's just going to visit so the word abandoned has so much more meaning to that section where you know having that phone conversation where she's putting her brother together with her mother and using the term abandoned it carries a lot more weight and I think there's multiple times within this film where that phone is being used to the story. Like you're saying, Matt, it, it is it is a theme running throughout that is supported throughout. And it isn't just check out this cool shot we did. Now here is our story that we can tell. Or, or even worse, yeah. we put all our money into this shot and it's the only thing that people remember about our movie. Um, it isn't. It is... It is a it is a big bold beginning that just takes us right into a story that supports that concept throughout without it being over the top and like look a phone in your face but at the same time it's always consciously there we're, we're never not conscious of the phone but it is so ingrained in the story structure and the characters lives that it's not taken for granted but at the same time it is not the thing that is being held in our face as right. look at how important this phone is uh which is you know yeah that that conversation that you mentioned with with the with her mom and her brother is a really interesting example of that because they're ostensibly in the same house um and yet the conversations that she has with each of them indicates just how far apart they are in sort of conceiving of what their relationship is and and you know how they're they're interacting with each other um and she's closer to each one of them on an individual basis than they are to each other despite the fact that she's not there and 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 they are um so it's just another example of kind of using this device in a way to show a different dynamic it's interesting that it's essentially showing the wizard behind the curtain. You're seeing the nuts and bolts of how this technology actually exists, mm-hmm. which for the rest of us, we, you know, take no notice of that. It seems like it's in the air somehow. The same thing with showing us the wizard behind the curtain with the judges listening devices. And yet 
we're constantly talking about fate and chance and these unseen connections. But at the same time, there's always some hand that's moving this. So it's, it's the very real and the very mysterious existing at the same time. Yeah, I was saving this observation for the for the comparison of the three films. But in a way, uh, I feel like there is um, a real presentation of the camera as a godlike figure in each of these movies, but it's a very different god in each film. You know, in in blue, it's it's an interactive god. She is aware of the camera at these crucial moments, and the camera is almost willing her along to her fate or destiny or whatever it is, forcing her to kind of make these decisions and uh, make these choices that that will lead her to sort of her ultimate place um, in in life and in white it's it's much more passive it's got uh, a true removal um, that kind of comes it kind of kind of goes away a little bit at the very end but it but throughout the, the rest of the film there is this remove I think from what we're seeing and kind of what the what the camera is doing but here it is it's that it it's pulling strings essentially it's it is the it is god as conductor or as uh, or as the wizard behind the curtain you know that that's shot of the panning across the bowling alley where she's um, bowling in one lane and then we move over to see that um that the younger judge has uh tomas i think is that or august august um, yeah um has just left with the broken beer glass um there's all these moments that feel like the movie is is uh, like Travis said earlier. It's very it's a very directed movie, and that aspect of it I think could come off um, as creaky. But I think what he's really doing is is kind of trying to say that there is some unseen force be behind all of this, and and even if it's not fate per se there is this feeling that like there you know things have happened before and they'll happen again because there is this design for everything thing that you have whenever you're around the judge is that yeah he's there's a machination in what he's in what he's doing he is it's almost like he's planning something he he is able to see the fate of august because of that it is, is his own life there's a weird strip feeling to this movie where yeah everything is circling looping back around itself it's like there's this eddy of this character's life and uh, valentine is just kind of floating until bump into each other and there's that connection which happens at the end of the film and satisfaction of the two of them finally meeting for us but there is for the judge directed feeling i think works in this film as opposed to it feeling like it stands out as figure that is imbued with this idea that he knows more than what we yeah. the audience and valentine can kind of perceive well then... he certainly feels like a stand-in for kishlowski right if he's the director not the judge then this all makes this all makes sense that the that the camera and the characters and the in the work would be happening in such a specific manner which is uh which works for the film yeah. 
Well, and I, I always think about when I'm watching the judge, like think I think about the what Kieślowski said about his reason for getting into narrative film, which was that um, he felt like he couldn't get at the uh, the personal truth of his characters in the documentary film without invading their privacy. And so narrative was his opportunity to be able to examine the um, the intimate sphere of uh of a human or of a relationship or of whatever subject it was that he was exploring um, without violating someone's privacy. And obviously that's exactly what the judge is doing with what he's uh, doing. Although of course, within the context of a narrative movie, so it's, he's not actually invading anybody's privacy. It's all made up, but within the world of the movie, He's doing exactly what Kieślowski felt like he wasn't actually able to do in real life. It's it's sort of the the fantasy fulfilled of of what Kieślowski wishes that he could accomplish in documentary film. So then, is the judge ultimately doing these machinations in order to assuage his guilt or because it's the right thing to do? final shot it's it's the right thing to make himself feel better and he realizes that 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 this the cynicism within that that he has done something to make himself feel better and it all worked out but it also goes to prove that you can't just do good without it being a selfish reason which is kind of you know that that look Uh, of mm -hmm. crying and staring at the end is kind of like i did it but it cost the lives of 1,400 other people, but, you know, I made it work. Right. <laughs> Go team. <laughs> I always, I, I wonder too, and I, I don't think that this is the case because I, I think he probably did stop spying on people, so he wouldn't be have this information kind of available to him, but um, we don't really know that he's not lying about the things that happened in his past um, and sort of saying the things that Auguste oh, geez, has dude, had dude, don't say that. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> now I think it's even more skeevy. <laughs> I think there's also a little, it seems like there's a little bit of a tease in the way that he tells his story. I thought he was going to say, and I'm your father. Or I'm your brother's father. Or right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's odd. But at the same time, I, in this life, am maybe going to be your lover in the form of Auguste. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Right, There, because there is that. It's like, it, because it is a very paternal relationship, but at the same time, um, the, the, the parallels that they draw and then the obvious fact that it's kind of intended to be this, you know, there, there is sort of that misconnection component to the movie. Uh, that's kind of like that, uh, movie serendipity, the, uh, the John Cusack, um, <laughs> romantic comedy where they keep missing each other. Um, they basically like force themselves into a romantic comedy by, by inventing new ways to get, uh, to get lost from each other. And th- there is a bit of that here where it's like, they're, uh, you know, he, oh, like if only he had turned left and then they would have met before 1400 people died at the end. <laughs> um, so there is this, like, it's like this rom-com that's happening, uh, you know, at the same time that she's developing this relationship with this older judge. 
and oh by the way these these people might be exactly the same person just living at different Speaking times. Speaking of comedy, this is the first time that Kieslowski is allowed uh, is a woman to be funny in his movie. Usually, it's he only lets a Jersey Stir be the uh, be the comedic character <laughs> in any of his films. But when uh, Valentine is chasing the dog, that look that like when she says, "All right, I'm going to let you off, but don't run," and then she gives that look, <laughs> and then she interrupts Mass to say, "Hey, I lost my dog." <laughs> Oh yeah, that seems so it's, so random. It's so, so random. random, but it's so good because it's. I mean, one, it's yeah. it's very you know it's a it's a character scene. It's very telling of her that she's so, you know, just kind of like her own kind of world that she wouldn't think anything of interrupting yeah. Mass to find her dog. Um, but that part is that part is quite amusing. And there's oh man, it totally just went out of my head. There was another moment in which she. She has a line or she gives a look and I just, I cracked up and I thought, okay, this is good. She's like, he's allowing, like, there is some humor going on in this film that is, uh, it feels like that romantic comedy type humor that you would get in those types of films, which is, uh, which is kind of funny. And down to uh, Karine having that job of the, the weather reports. I mean, it's almost yes. kind of twee. That, what, that is a very twee thing. Yeah, I totally agree. There, there, there are again parallels, uh, Veronique, to a certain degree in terms of of being that borderline cutesiness um, that can be, uh, you know, hit or miss for me. Um, but I think here, yeah, you know, I, I think this all also comes back a little bit to the criticism of Kieślowski's later works uh, from Veronique to this as being um, kind of surface level mystical spirituality and i guess i think you know i was thinking about this more and i i kind of think of his films a little bit as sort of i want to call it pop psychology but that makes it sound very um dismissive or or kind of um you know low rent and i, I don't think of it that way but i think of it more as i i, I think his his big questions and the issues that he's really engaging with um, on a kind of philosophical level are questions that almost every person, regardless of how deep into your kind of intellectual life or, or inward facing um, spirituality you get, um, deals with on a regular basis. Like the perception of feeling alone or together with other people. Um, the feeling of, of fate or destiny or whatever these are, they're not complicated subjects that the average person that, you know, works at the mall um, and goes to uh, the movies and listens to Kiss 101, like, <laughs> never thinks about. Well, that's the, Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's cinema psychology. That's that... It's that idea, like we have to have a problem that everyone faces, you know that, and so we can we can talk about it and make it relatable, and like all of his, yeah, which I think falls under to the kind of like if done well falls under the the yeah. the, the banner of this is such a humanistic movie, human humanistic movie because it it helps explore these ideas that everyone has and. If it's done poorly, then it's just like it's a grab to kind of get people into this, you know, into that pop psychology concept. It's like when uh, 
I always think of the end of Psycho or the uh, dream sequence in Spellbound in which, yeah. you know, Hitchcock had read something about this and said, oh, I want this in my movie because this would uh, this would kind of help help tell my narrative story more. And uh, it doesn't really work that way, but it works narratively for the uh, for the film. But, you know, Kisowski uh, is using those same kind of uh you know, narrative sensibilities in terms of making sure that the movie is palatable to audiences, but delving in that delving into them in more of a unique and original way uh, for, I guess the time or for what it is, it's not ham fisted. Like it could be done. I think somehow though, at the same time that I guess the, when I do have problems with the films, it comes down to I don't think he gives people in general enough credit, especially women. And it ultimately strikes me that as much of the humanistic approach that there is, I can't imagine having a down-to-earth conversation with him. Yeah. <laughs> I I know what you mean. It's funny. He, he does strike me as somebody who is kind of very... Um simultaneously mercurial and uh like uh humanistic at the same time and it's hard to reconcile kind of his personality with especially these later works um i mean this seems like a good time good uh, as good a time as ever for me to read this quote because i i did feel like it was kind of interesting when somebody asked him kind of whether he his uh you know he's he's always described himself as a pessimist, but it seems like his later films are uh, touched with a kind of transcendent optimism, is the way that they put it. And he said it's probably connected with my trying to move closer to the individual. I really think that there's more hope in individual people than in the social and political principles that rule our lives. That each of us has within ourselves some sort of basis that is good. But at the same time, even with that, we create a world that is bad. It's strange. The world is evil and stupid. <laughs> All right. I mean, I can't he fully out disagree at, at any, with any of it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, well, I mean, he starts yeah. out as like you know, there's there's hope in the individual. Um, he he also said in an interview, a separate interview that I read, you know, the re, one of the, the the sort of guiding concepts of both the Decalogue and the Three Colors, where in Decalogue, you're, the idea is that, um, you know, you're looking in on different windows of this uh, apartment complex, and here it's it's the reverse of that, right? You're you're meeting these people and not knowing how they're connected until the very end, um, and he said that the reason he did that was to show that every person's story is interesting, um, which to me does not strike me as a kind of a pessimistic concept. Um, and, and, that, and that stems out of his documentary side as well. Well, yeah. And exploring human, human lives. And, and is this like a, I mean, I, to me, that's a very political uh, comment. It's not something that would have anybody would have said 500 years ago. And I don't know if, you know, I think you can read into that socialism as much as you can read into it. Uh, demo democracy, certainly something like, you know, Moby Dick creating an epic out of a, a regular fisherman captain, 
um, is an example of sort of the democratization of fiction, right? But this is a guy that came from a socialist society and certainly like the neo-realist perspective of making movies, um, which was heavily informed by socialism, was the perspective of that the ordinary person's story is the story that's worth telling. It's the one that's going to be elevated to epic, tragic scale. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a specific point about either that quote that I read or, or this concept that every person's story is interesting. But I think it says a lot about his movies. But I also wonder, like, is that really the what's being depicted in this trilogy? What what I've just read, like the idea that there's hope in the individual, but the world is evil and stupid. Thinking about something that I read, I think it was Roger Ebert, and this is where I choose to come down on in, in terms of why I respond to the trilogy. And it was that when, specifically in relation to this film, when other filmmakers are exploring those unseen connections, it can start to make the world seem smaller. As opposed to Kieślowski, when he does this, it makes the world seem much larger and mm -hmm. more open. In, a, in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, uh, the question becomes kind of what his intention is with the the work that he put out in this uh, four to five year run, or um, I guess it was more like three uh, between Veronique and Red. Um, is, I mean, is his intention to show that the world is is a, a big and complicated place? Um, you know, is he it, it, are his films meant as a as a call to action to have this connection with other people? You know, it's interesting, like thinking about uh, ramping up into a, a summary episode of this guy and what his films were really about. You know, it's it's he, the way he talks about filmmaking in comparison to the the two previous directors that we've covered is so different and it's it's there's so much more of a kind of uh, uh, what would be considered to be like a stereotypically blue-collar workmanlike approach to his craft like this idea that you know this is what he learned and it's not a particularly uh, respectable job but it's the job that he has, and so he just kind of puts his head down and does his job, and now he hates it, so he's going to stop. Um, it's not, it's not, certainly not, um, uh, he would never e describe himself as an artist with a vision that, the, you know, was going to be executed. Um, and yet he is tackling these, these big, weighty issues that everybody is forced to confront in their lives. Um, I mean, what do these films say about about him as a filmmaker or what, what he's trying to accomplish? Going back to what he originally stated when he made the move from doc to narrative, I think he still wants to explore people's inner lives. I think that as he moved further away from documentary style and realizing that he could get more personal by making the films more to use the term they use about him metaphysical and that helps shape and understand the inner workings of characters and i think he as he as he goes to explore those concepts he is and as his career has progressed he's been introduced to more artistic 
endeavors by his cinematographers, his uh, composer, his editors, and he's been able to take those workmanlike ideas and blow them up into these really beautiful and lyrical uh, films, which I don't think is his natural tendency to be lyrical to begin with. But I think that as time has progressed and as he has more exposure and has been more involved in the world and these people, he's been able to become more lyrical in his work, which is therefore what he is now known for. Like if you take a general poll of people of what they know about uh, Kieslowski, it's going to be these last four films. And there, his previous work is probably not going to be as well known. And I think because it is so, lack of a better term, ugly, it's not as beautiful. There aren't beautiful people. Uh, you know, there, there's just this, there's this sense of uh, the art film as as this European style that he's made with these past four films, if you go back to his other films, there, there is a plainness to them, um, a naturalism to them, which I think comes from his older style. And as he's gotten more involved, it has evolved as well. So I think he still is doing the thing he wanted to do, which is to tell stories of people's inner lives and how they make the decisions or how it comes together. And I don't think it, that has changed that much. I think the style of how he presents this information has changed drastically. But I think the common core has always remained. And I'm going to speak to just these three. Takeaway most from it is that we can and should to achieve connections with other people. They exist, even though we may not know it. And there's a capacity in all of us to achieve something pr profound within that connection. I have to, I have to agree with you. I mean, to me, I don't, I have a difficult time kind of reading these movies in any other way. And I think that's what makes his comments so fascinating because you, you never get the sense that the filmmaker lines up with the films that he produced here. Um, and, you know, maybe that's somebody who's only capable of speaking their truth through their art, or, um, you know, he's just simply doesn't like to be interviewed. <laughs> um, yeah. Which or, is certainly true of most, most filmmakers, I think. Or one of those people who maybe thinks that his time is possibly passed for that, but hopes the rest of us mm. go out and do that. Well, that's an interesting characterization of, of his work, especially because um, of these three women in these movies being so young yeah. and even, even really Julie in um, blue despite the fact that she's uh, she was a, a mother and had a child, um, still has the, the vast majority of her adult life ahead of her. Um, these are characters that, um, you know, have the opportunity and the capacity for change, the, compa the capacity for growth. They're starting um, at the beginning of their lives. Um, 
I guess what how does that inform kind of your perspective on especially um, these last two female protagonists and kind of their the blank slate component uh, that you've observed that I I would tend to agree with I don't know if it's kind of again back to that idea I was talking about of I don't know how much he was ever ever able to relate to fellow human beings and I I don't I don't want to dismiss it as faulty writing because I don't think that that's fair to do after all of this time and especially for a person who may have just turned right around this other trilogy he was planning could have been the most interesting and phenomenal women characters we've ever seen on the face of the planet who knows <laughs> just didn't have that opportunity or it could have been revealing more about his misunderstanding fear of women it's interesting that he he made the turn into making film about women when he made no end uh, up until that point all of his films have been solely about men and uh, issues with men and most of the women were painted fairly poorly uh, not 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 in the worst ways not in a misogynistic way in which we've uh, grown accustomed to with some directors uh, I know we had a hard time uh, you know justifying a lot of Kubrick's choices when it right, came to right. women but with you know Kislowski it's always been like you know they are there and they have some stuff going on but they're not you know it is the time and the place you know that it's not so much him as much as it is what what is the circumstances and so when he started doing these movies you know when you have blue you start to realize in retrospect that julie uh the julia binoche put a lot to make that character more true um because the, the thing that i've been watching and reading about is how much Kislowski was a, a technician and it was about walk to this part here turn your head this way look at the camera that way touch that thing with two fingers not with one you know he was very very uh, exacting in terms of what the technical things was which goes to him being a technician like Matt was talking about or asked about earlier um, and I think that when it comes to the dealing with these female characters and I think that they both, him and Pisovitz, are both at a loss of kind of how to write for these women characters. And I think they left it up a lot to the actresses to be able to put themselves into the characters, like allowing them to improvise and add. And so if you're a young actress and you're not really secure in being able to be forward and put put your ideas on the table then i can see them being blank slates being very uh not no agency within their uh mm. within their realm and i can see that now especially i think it was uh i can't remember off the top of my head the actress in no end but they had a bit of a falling out and it took some coaxing to get her back to do a short film about love or episode six of the decalogue yeah. and i think that was 
because of that, uh, I think this the same reason. She did not like being told mechanically how to do things, and there was no chance for her to kind of uh, improvise and get her character right. And I think she had a hard time with that. And I think with you know Julia Binoche coming off of working with Leo Carre, uh, she was able to kind of say, okay, well, that was a partnership making those movies, so that's what this needs to be. I need to be able to inject personal things in here. And then with uh, Irene Jacob, I think it became she became a better actress after these movies. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, because she's so young and so new to the profession that she kind of is just allowing things to happen. So those personal those personal changes that an actress would make to give a character more uh, roundness and development uh, is not happening. Uh, with her, which I think we also talked a little bit about in uh, the double life. But obviously, that that's like you know, a fault of the of the script to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, you always want your char- your actors to be able to bring something to the role that wasn't on the page. But if you um, if you are relying entirely on them to generate a, a compelling characterization of the person that they're playing, then you're not doing your work of laying the groundwork for them to be able to really succeed, I think. And I think Juliette Binoche is an almost preternaturally intelligent performer, yeah. and mm-hmm. which is why I think I I feel like Blue is the one that sticks with me now, that 20 years later, I can find so much more in it than I can with the others that there's just uh, that other component is her it does feel that way of these four films I mean one of the interesting things though I mean I think the the performance in no end is is really wonderful and it's a much more kind of complex and um, intense emotional portrait of a of a woman than we get in in Veronique white or or red um but there's a, a whole lot of really great female parts in Decalogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly uh, seven and eight have uh, very meaty roles in them. Uh, the wife in nine, I think, is is a really spectacular role, especially in comparison to Julie Delpy's character in White. So again, it seems not necessarily like a failing of Kieślowski, but that he was rather, well, not a failing in terms of being unable to write um, strong female characters, but instead a specific, uh, you know, failing or depending on how you kind of look at these characters. um, It was a, it was a, a choice that he was making about the type of characters that he wanted to write about. And he wasn't necessarily able to fully uh, execute that vision of who these characters were. And I think that mm-hmm. comes down to his process. Uh, every every story that I've heard from the actors in all the documentaries and interviews has been that, you know, no, not a lot of rehearsal. We just did one or two takes. And so, you know, we had lots of conversations in between takes, 
But otherwise than that, you know, there was times where he'd just say, no, do it this way. And that was it. And we just moved on. So that seems to be, you know, that technician aspect coming through and it not being fully achieved all the times with some of these characters. Um, You know, I think if there was, what is it? Is it Louis, uh, Jean-Louis? Jean-Louis. Yeah. uh, Trintignant. Yeah, I can't pronounce his Trentignon. 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 Uh, Jean-Louis Trentignon. I think uh, he, in his interview, he was talking about it and he said, you know, I had a hard time because I wasn't I wasn't given the proper space to be able to do the work I wanted to do. And so there became some kind of, you know, there was some friction and stuff like that within the performance. But he goes, but, you know, when I see it on the screen, that friction comes out really well. It made me grumpy. <laughs> like, yeah. like my 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 my, a- my anger came through and you know that was because i was frustrated so it's all good but at the same time you could see where that kind of it might not have worked with Irin jacob because it, right it well wasn't... maybe it's confusion yeah i mean it's the sense of like you know you're not giving me enough here and so i'm not really sure how to be responding in these situations and that that might show up as passivity um I'm being moved across the board and I don't quite know right. what my ultimate goal is. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I think his performance is, is really great. He's obviously a great actor. Um, he's in my night at mods and the conformist and, um, probably most well known these days for being the husband in a, in a more, um, which is a, a film that we, that we mentioned, uh, in our blue conversation. Um, he he is always kind of a jerk in most of the movies that he's in but he has this i think um kind of uh deep humanity to his performance here that um kind of wins me over i find his relationship with uh valentine to be uh very moving and i think uh, those final moments work because of his character rather than because of uh, hers. The other thing I find interesting, uh, circling back to kind of like the whole the whole reason why this trilogy is kind of existing, and that's that idea that you know here's this tragedy that happened. Here are these six survivors. Let's tell their stories. Like, what brought them to this moment? I find that to be very, like, an interesting way of doing it because a normal, a normal film or a normal filmmaker would have, would have had that tragedy being placed throughout the whole film, all three films, and kind of flashing back and kind of giving us each character's story and to save it for the very end to see that this is how we're all connected, that even across the three films we're connected to these people and these are all moments, you know, that is a... That is an interesting choice, but it also kind of, like we've talked about, the limitations of having these things. Like, you have to have this thing happen, or these movie, yeah. these three movies aren't, sim- aren't, aren't linked the way that they're supposed to be. Um, did, any, did you guys feel that these three films thematically worked without that uh, moment of having these characters connect? Like... Is there enough in each film that kind of helps play off each other as a trilogy, as like a first act, second act, third act? Or did you guys feel that at all? I think that I felt now, I mentioned this just for a second in white, 
where I, I start to think about the films being a reflection of the previous film, a choice that a character makes in one film could have been the alternate choice that a character made in the in another film. So in White, that story could have been Julie's story if she had gone down another path. It's the same. Yeah, it's the same concept. And then within Red itself, we have those same branching choices that uh, we need to keep these characters on these same paths to be able to make these connections happen further on down the way, which kind of almost takes away that concept of choice at some point. Like that's one of the things I feel like happens in red is that you know whereas in blue i feel like uh julie is making very specific choices you know we talked about how she is choosing to not react in the way that is expected of her where and in white he's making very specific choices to drive the plot forward to kind of uh, get his revenge or you know his his comeuppance whereas this movie it feels like there are no choices. The choices are already have been made. So there is no tension of what's going to happen except for let's see where this goes. So it could be all of these varying scenarios of how choice does or does not exist. One, making the choices you don't expect or, or choosing not to choose, choosing to remove yourself mm-hmm. in white, then making these extreme left field choices to achieve this bizarre aim. And then in red going in, then yet another completely different direction. I mean, I, I the one thing I will say is that it seems to me like blue very much is about somebody who's trying to remove themselves from their fate or their decision or the thing that they uh, must choose and ultimately she's unable to outrun it that this is who she is and this is her way of kind of expressing how how she feels in terms of the composition of of the orchestral piece and it's kind of true in white and red as well that in white you know he goes to all this trouble to enact revenge on his ex-wife only to discover in the end that they are really still in love with each other and are going to get back together again which we find out is exactly the case at the end of this movie similarly with with Juliette Binoche and the her her husband's uh, Olivier friend yeah uh, which you know, it's not necessarily the case that they were on a kind of love tryst uh, there. They they aren't necessarily together because they were both on that boat. But it does seem to be the implication that these are pairing pairings off of couples that are that are rescued here. I will say I enjoyed the uh, continuation of of having our Carol Carol still be the uh, one who gets it the worst by the only one who gets carried out on a stretcher yeah. while everyone else walks out. Uh, you know, his fate is always that he's going to get the shit end of the <laughs> stick no matter what happens. It was funny, yeah. Well, um, I was upset we didn't see the dog. That's what uh, bothered yeah. me the most at the it end. It does seem like it does seem like his dog and his his ex girlfriend did not um, make it through the storm. No, well, that's definitely there's a lot of dog violence, I guess, in this movie. Uh, yeah. But Let there's me... a new dog waiting for them back home. Rita, they, Rita's dog, <laughs> the little puppies. Yeah, the puppies. 
But I do want to amend what I was saying about Red. Maybe Red is then she allows other people to make the choices for her. That's the difference. Mm, okay. That's yeah. true, yeah. Yep. I see that. I mean the other the other thing, like the photographer tells her how to how to look in that picture. You know, she yeah. he's making the choices for her about her career and um I mean I guess the only moment when she does make that choice is when she rejects his advances. She says she's thinking about somebody else. Do you think that she's thinking about her boyfriend in that situation or the judge or is she I think I do think she was thinking of Michelle still. I think the choice and fate perspective of the connections of the movies is definitely a compelling one. I when I'm thinking about kind of the connections across these movies, the way I start to think about it is are are all of these connections that I'm seeing really just preoccupations or affectations of the filmmaker that made all three of these movies and the easiest i think way of gut checking that is to compare these movies to veronique and and certainly veronique could quite easily be the fourth movie in this uh, quad quadrilogy. I don't know. There's like a word for it. I forget. Saga. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, it could it could easily be called Three Colors Yellow. You know, um, mm-hmm. with 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 all of the filters and the, in that sense, they do really work as um, as a whole piece. Certainly, there's choices being made in in those in that film, especially. By the second, uh, Veronique is uh, pulling out from uh, performing, kind of saving her life in that moment. Um, there's also the the, the ballerina connection um, to this film in Veronique, and also, of course, the the first movie that Kieślowski ever made with a real focus on female characters was his his documentary um, Seven Women of Different Ages, which was about ballerinas of different ages. There are more kind of larger connections to his work that, and certainly in Veronique, the idea that you're not alone or that you're connected to other people, the space between other people is something that's 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 a constant. Um, and again, we have kind of a bit of a a blank slate character as the as the lead character. But I think the the kind of larger global perspective and the you know that that feeling of the world being bigger like like you mentioned Erica as opposed to smaller because of these connections that really i think comes to fruition in in the three colors trilogy much more so than in Veronique where it feels very small everything seems interconnected um and and intimate especially between these two characters and here there is this opening up of society this idea of like you know the european union and um, and telephone wires that cross the English Channel, and these this sense of sort of a global perspective, and that that uh, a sense of humanity that goes beyond what's depicted in the film, I think is really where Three Colors separates itself from the rest of Kieślowski's work, because previously he was a much more insular director. Um, uh, provincial director and i don't mean that in a negative sense but really focused on his society his society's concerns and really thinking about 
the world from the perspective of his world. And I think that ended after Veronique. And with these three colors, it was really a lot more about kind of what uh, what we were all experiencing and kind of speaking to the larger society. And I don't know if that comes from his growth as a filmmaker, as an artist, or if it comes more from his growth as a uh, filmmaker, as a celebrity. You know, the sense of like, he's traveling to all these different countries, he's meeting all these different people, these movies are all financed by international groups. He obviously worked with a non-Polish crew for a lot of Veronique, and so that probably broadened his perspective. But regardless, I, it fe that feels like the kind of demarcation point between Veronique and Three Colors was this glo global perspective. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the other thing that really kind of separates those out is, uh, is finance. Having the money to be able to do just these crazy, crazy things that uh, the cinematographers wanted to do. Um, some of the camera work in red is... Uh, you know, cranes on top of cranes to pull off some of these shots that they were doing, especially that the, the opening shot of the street where you see a ghost coming out to go walk the dog or to go to the grocery store. I don't know which. And the camera moves up and then pushes through the window to pick up uh, Valentine answering the phone call from Michelle and then going to the bed. Like that's all in one take, one shot. And that's a pretty complex and complicated maneuver. I mean, that shot alone is probably like a full day's work. Like there was no shooting anything else besides that that day, um, especially with all the, the, the natural light that need is needed and, you know, balancing act of everything. I'm sure with rehearsals and practice and moving and doing it, you know, they probably got maybe two two usable takes out of that whole day and that was it because that's a that's really complex and there was a lot of that in red just really these complex shots and set pieces um i'm thinking of the uh the fashion show at the end of the film uh that is a pretty that is a pretty huge uh set piece for uh Kislowski. i know when we think of set pieces we think of like these really big like you know james bond-esque jumping right, from a train yeah. yeah but for for a Kislowski film which you know most of the film takes place in one room of two people talking uh something along that line of having a backstage a front stage a big theater loaded with people all the stuff on the stage all the lighting the camera moves that are happening within it's a it's a pretty huge undertaking and i think that having the money to be able to exercise those kind of flights of fancy and thoughts that the cinematographers were having in these three films allowed him to really kind of separate th these films from his past work uh, you can see that moving out of the eastern bloc and moving out of poland and getting actual money is allowing them to to go crazy and do these really beautiful things and not have to worry about the austerity of keeping all of, you know, having a specific budget that he cannot meet. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty impressive to see what he can do with, uh, with some money. I always, I always think that's a fun one to, to talk about is, is I don't know why there's not awards for production, you know, production with the most money and production with the least money. Like, what can you do? Like, <laughs> yeah, how well can right. you spend this money? What can you do with it? And like, how, how, how good can it be in service of your story or of your work, as opposed to just, you know, spending money to spend money kind of, which happens quite often with these really large productions. 
Yeah, and we've gotten a lot of uh, foreign language nominations for Best Cinematographer in the past recent years, uh, so it doesn't seem that unusual, but um, there were regularly uh, foreign language uh, directors uh, nominated for Best Director throughout the Oscars history, but it's very rare to get a, a cinematography nomination for uh, a film like this, and Sobaczynski uh, went on to make uh, a career in Hollywood for um, the next uh, five years or so until he um, had a heart attack. He also uh, he made, died he early. Made Ransom. Yeah. yeah, he made Ransom, uh, the the Ron Howard, uh, Mel Gibson movie, most famous for Mel Gibson shouting, give me back my son. Uh, <laughs> but but I think they saw, you know, in him what he could what he could pull off with a budget on this movie. This is a beautiful movie. Um, and he, he also filmed uh, Decalogue 3 and 9, the only cinematographer to, to do more than one of those. And um, those also have, have very distinct visual, a, a very distinct visual look um, that's, that's different from each other. 3 is one of the, I think, one of the best shot yes. um, of the Decalogue episodes. So, um, well, we haven't covered the music yet. Obviously, Vanden Boonenmeyer makes a, a special guest appearance here. We actually see a drawing of him. Um, I I think the the music here, which they describe as a bolero, um, which I I don't know what that means, but uh, until they describe it, but um, I think that this is a a really wonderful score, um, kind of on on par with with the blue score, even if it's not as um, overtly. Uh, presented to us and uh, woven into the narrative i think yeah no i agree i think this is fantastic and i like that they they focus a bit of time on on uh us getting to know a little bit more about van and budenmeyer uh you know at the cd store which is another fantastic use of technology as means of joining people together but keeping them separate you know nothing nothing's more visual than that <laughs> yeah everyone standing in a room listening to their own music uh is pretty uh pretty comical but uh i remember those times that was such a <laughs> going to a tower records in a wall of people just listening to their own oh, music totally. figuring uh what they want to buy but it was as cool as uh, as she's leaving the record store, the theme from uh, the theme from White starts playing over the over the speakers, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, mm. were there other components of the uh, film that you felt like didn't work for you, Erica? I'm curious to hear more about kind of what you felt let down by beyond um, uh, the character of Valentine. That that was mostly it. I think I've I've gone over those things when I felt like he didn't necessarily come down one side or the other or it didn't sort of complete its mission to paraphrase you and but instead a thing that I really did like the use of red here because it is completely different than yeah. blue and white it's less mysterious it's not color washes it's specific items right. and clothing my f actual favorite though is the more mysterious use of it when they're talking about lighting and the judge's house or the time of day, it has the weakest use of red. And I think it was uh, it was well placed in that moment. It really served the story. I, I liked how the only the only red that's kind of introduced into that place is when she comes in in a red sweater. 
um, most and the and the Vanden Budemeyer uh, record. Like everything else, it's it's pretty muted. Uh, I know that listening to Sobosinski talk about his goals. You know, red. He didn't want the film to just be red. He wanted it to be brown, green, and red. With red being those connective tissues. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments is when we go into her apartment and we have you know the red rocking chair is moving, but she sets her yogurt down, which had the little red cherries on it. And then later, when she is chasing after the dog, the camera glides over a window, and in the window sill are 10 of those yogurts that she has been eating earlier, all with those red <laughs> cherries. And then it, it reframes into that door with the church behind. And that that visual cue that these things are all connected is, it's, it's super impressive. Um, I think in one of the interviews, I think it was the editor who talked about how every day they, you know, there was 480 connections that were to be made. You had to remember which connection you were focusing on for each shot for each day to make sure that it connects to something else throughout the film. And there are so many that I I, like upon my third viewing of the movie, I'm sitting there going, "Okay, I see. Wow. You know, he's wearing suspenders in that shot and the judge is wearing suspenders and says, snap my suspenders. It feels good. And then there's the painting of her, the ballerina in that pose. And then you go to Valentine doing the same oh, exact yeah. pose in her class. Right. And mm-hmm. The cherries on the the cherries on the on the machine on the uh, slot machine are the same exact cherries that are on the yogurts. Like they're the same drawing rendition of cherries. So it's 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 fascinating. And then yeah, like I like what you're saying, Erica. With the red is so. Sp- Specific. It isn't just. It's not like an emotional feeling, like in blue, where we 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 don't know, and it's this or white, where it's like the palette for what's happening in front of it. This one is almost like everything that's red is a connection to something else. It's all those. It's all those invisible lines made made clear. Um, everything red is a way to connect to something else in the movie, which is just showing us all these invisible connections that exist within our lives anyway. And I love the weak spring light that can't quite achieve, you know, one of those sunsets for the judge. Oh, yeah. 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 Where, uh, yeah, he goes, wait, this, and it's almost, and that's also part of that whole, like, him having, like, pulling the strings a bit. It's like, wait, the light is really nice right now. And it's only that, like, two minutes where the light can shine through between the cracks of the two buildings Mm. to get into his window. And there's that bright light that comes in the room and just fills it and then goes away. And the light is just weak. Otherwise it's dark and dim and dingy in there. That were called the green Ray, uh, the Romare movie for me. And the protagonist in that film is, has a bit of Valentine in it, although she's a lot grumpier, uh, and, and more, uh, more complicated, um, but there is that sense of like searching, like always searching for that one fleeting moment that's, you know, impossible to grasp and, and hold on to. Um, but I think those connections, again, like tie into the idea that, that, that this is really the puppet master movie of the trilogy, you know, that there's there's like a grander design at play here. And if you, you know, if you uh, wanted to lose your mind, you could quite easily make one of those Hollywood-style photograph uh, map boards with the strings drawing. Uh, we'll make sure the strings are red. It's red yeah, strings. It's, yeah, it red, red strings. String. Exactly. Everyone has red um, string for some reason in those movies. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think again, it 
the movie feels guided by a hand constantly, but in a very layered and compelling way for me. Are there any other things that you guys want to cover on Red or, or on the trilogy as a whole? I guess I guess the only other thing that we, we touched on a little bit, but we didn't kind of go too in depth, is that there is a bit of an arc in Valentine in which, uh, I think, Matt, you touched upon it, her having the real feeling versus being directed by it uh, for the photograph. You know, having to express what sadness is while she's sitting in front of the uh, camera doing the modeling job of having her having her picture taken in front of the red thing for the gum advertisement um, you know and then knowing what true sadness is as she is removed from the boat and she sees the destruction around her um, that 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 growth and that change within her that has happened by facing some sort of tragedy as opposed to kind of bouncing through life um, without anything really bad happening to her, I think is a very, I did enjoy that. I did enjoy the visual echo of that. There's lots yeah. of visual echoes in this movie that we didn't talk about. Um, shots that are exactly the same, even though they appear like, uh, 30, 40 minutes apart from each other. So we know we're in these places and they're almost the exact same moves. Um, the, the church, uh, framed in the doorway of the convenience store is one of them. The uh, the the road leading up to uh, to the judge's house is another one. It's the same camera pan, um, even though they're not together. It's almost like at a, I think the the idea of deja vu, where things have happened before, and we're kind of feeling that, which goes back to that feeling that this is a giant Mobius strip of a film. Yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect, like all those. All those moments that were visual echoes of each other that mean one thing the first time and mean something new the second time we see that I really appreciated in this movie. Mm-hmm. I ha- I do have one other question I forgot to ask. So a lot of people all the time, they're like, oh, I'm getting into three colors. Is there an order that you have to watch them in? Obviously, the only thing that really would necessitate an order is uh, is that ending. Do you guys feel like that this uh, makes it so that red needs to be watched last? Do you have to watch blue, white, red? Um, and what? how would the your perspective change on the earlier films if you knew the ending of red, if at all? I would always advocate for Goig in the order that it was produced because otherwise it feels like anarchy and that makes me want to <laughs> burn stuff down. I don't like that. Burn but, it down. And, burn it all. Yeah. And and I think that there's a progression, and I think that's important. I think you can only understand yeah. that after you have watched it in that order. After that, play around with it. You know, right, have go nuts. fun. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I I agree. I think uh, I think you I think there's an intent for the the way that it was made. I I do think that. Uh, on retrospect white is a deep breath between the two films that uh, allows you to kind of process uh, the more heady the more emotional in blue and the more heady in red um, in terms of kind of like philosoph- uh, philosophical yeah. ideas um, right but no I think I think I can't remember I think talking to someone they watched red first and then went back and watched blue and white and I still don't think they even 
like, I think the comment was, oh, I didn't even piece together that those are the same people on the boat until I saw Red right. for another time. And I think that's, you know, they do, that's the thing. He does not, he doesn't, like, make a meal out of that boat accident. He just, you know, they right. step off the boat. Their names are announced like it would be on any, I just want to know, what's the story with the bartender? He doesn't deserve a movie. Where's the Where's the coda film of the bartender's life leading up to that boating accident? He's the only the other, other one that survived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. number right. seven. Yeah, he like, may have what, been the subject his... of the next trilogy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> he gets his own spilling off trilogy. Well, uh, this is uh, the last movie. Um, <laughs> this is Hishlovsky. Uh, uh, famously announced that he was retiring at Cannes um, and basically said that he was uh, announcing it so that he wouldn't be able to go back on it later on. He did uh, end up um, beginning work on writing another trilogy uh, a couple years later, which we will uh, briefly cover on our wrap-up episode next time. Um, but th- this was uh, this was the end of his uh, filmmaking career. He he ended with a you know fairly big commercial success and um, and an and an Oscar nomination, which is not too shabby. But uh, he was in his fifties, just kind of getting started. What do you guys think of Red as kind of the capstone on a career? Does it feel like a final film? I think the finale feels like a final feel film. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, I mean, if I, I think I like to look at the three colors trilogy as his final statement as a whole, because it was something that was planned. But, you know, if you're to kind of look at the last shot of uh, Jean-Louis, Jean-Louis Trigignon, the judge staring out at the window, looking at everything that he has moved into place to make work, I think that's a pretty fitting ending, uh, unintentional ending for his career, I think. All right. Well, Erica, we did we did it, yeah. Erica. We we we, we did it. covered all three Yay. of these movies. Thank you so much for no, thank coming you. on this journey with us that fortunately resulted in zero losses of life. Uh, no all no dogs were harmed in the making of this podcast trilogy. Um, so I, I consider this a success. Yeah, my pleasure, my distinct pleasure to have gone on this journey with you guys. No, we appreciate it. So we will be doing one more uh, brief episode. We'll do a wrap-up episode covering some of the other uh, ancillary movies uh, related to Kieślowski and summing up this journey that we've been on. Yeah. Um, and we can save we can save the the final final ranking for that. Oh that yeah, episode. we gotta see, we gotta have something to draw people into the next episode. I need to have a think. I gotta okay. say, yeah, with, no, with I think I need to I need yeah I need more time to process. Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. <laughs> I think it's a lot. This is a this is a big career with lots of films and uh in and also being able to watch some of the documentaries and some of the other works that he was involved with that he didn't either get to complete or that someone else completed for him sounds like uh, something that'll help round out this picture fully. Definitely. And with that, we're complete for another week.